0: You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading.
1: Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 30, and to read the scriptures for us this morning uh, is Ola.
0: And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered, when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good.
1: Thank you, Ola. Would you uh, bow your heads and pray with me before we reflect on this passage? Let's pray. Our Lord, now we do ask that you would send your spirit and pour out your blessing on this, not only the reading, but also the preaching of your word, that these words on a page and the story written so long ago would become for us the very words of life, and they would unleash the transformative power of your spirit in our community. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Um, Well, last month, uh, a finding was released, Uh, Gallup, in partnership with Amazon, conducted a large-scale study amongst most of the Amazon employees entitled, Role Models Matter. And it looked at the importance of career role models as it related to career success. And uh, the hunch going into the study was that people who had role models would certainly excel professionally, excel in their career, but the findings were actually quite extraordinary. Among other things, uh, the findings found that those who had a career model, uh, role model found themselves more fulfilled in their career, they felt more established across the board, and they felt that they could live more comfortably with uh, the pay that was offered to them in their, in their current uh, position. The findings were, were pretty substantial. And they concluded that there was a dynamic relationship between the presence of a role model and career outcomes and perceptions later in life. And this shouldn't surprise us. I think all of us probably had parents at one point or another that were worried about us having bad role models in our lives. And if we didn't have a parent that was worried about that, you probably were the bad role model in someone else's life. Um, I don't know about you, but (laughs) that was supposed to be funny. Some people grimaced. I don't know about you, but most of my failures in life and times where things went wrong, I either had a bad role model by my side or I lacked a role model, and I pushed forward headlong into something which resulted in some bad failures. Well, listen, this passage is an interesting one, because in this particular passage, we are given from Jesus a role model, not a professional role model, but a role model for what true faith looks like. And this, this Canaanite woman is a role model in, in ways that are just absolutely extraordinary. It, it actually surprised me. There's so few religious paintings about her. Uh, there's very few people that probably uh, look up to her as, as a role model in their life, but this role is an extraordinary uh, story about that. And what I want to look at this morning is the way in which she, her faith unleashes God's power in her life. You know, in verse f- uh, 28 is the only time we read Jesus saying that someone has great faith. Great faith. He he says of the centurion a couple chapters earlier, he marvels at the centurion's faith, but he says of this Canaanite woman, a Gentile woman, great is her faith, and she is to be for us something of a role model about the way in which uh, the type of faith which unleashes the Spirit's power in our life. So what I want to look at this morning is what does great faith look like? What does it look like to have the type of faith that unleashes God's salvific and uh, his spirit's transformative power in our life? And I want to wrestle with three questions. I want to wrestle when is great faith put on display, what great faith refuses to believe, and what great faith ultimately believes. Sorry, every week this mic torments me. This is what I want to look at, okay? What great faith, er, when great faith is put on display, what great faith refuses to believe? and what great faith believes. So first, let's look at when is great faith put on display. Now, let me again give you some of the context. Last week, you may remember, if you were here, we looked at a passage where Jesus is embroiled in a conflict with the religious establishment over hand-washing, and this conflict escalates to the point that Jesus feels he must get away he had to withdraw because the Pharisees and the scribes who had come from Jerusalem were not persuaded by his arguments. And in fact, they were quite offended by what he had to say. So he withdraws. He heads north of the Sea of Galilee to, a district, to the district of Tyre and Sidon, we read in the, verse 21. And this is in modern day sort of Lebanon. And the cities of Tyre and Sidon are not good cities in the Bible. Their are cities that we read will experience God's judgment. The prophet Isaiah and many others describe these cities as idolatrous cities, wicked cities, that God's judgment will one day come. And as he enters into this region, sort of at the very outskirts of the territory of Israel and really intruding into territories outside of Israel, he encounters a Canaanite woman. Now, I don't have time to share with you this sort of backstory of who the Canaanites were, but these were the people who originally inhabited the land that God's peop- God promised to his people, and they were people who, through things like child sacrifice to Moloch, uh, God's judgment came upon them, and God's people were to drive them out and take over the land as, as, a, as a foreshadow of a, or a preview of the final judgment that will come when the end of history wraps up. And the Lord's people did not fully cleanse the land of the Canaanite people. I know this is hard for us to hear in modern society. And they continue to be a a source of difficulty in the life of, of God's people. And yet here we have a woman from a region which is repeatedly said to be under judgment, from a people who in some senses were the ultimate judged people in the Bible, the people, it seems, who were plagues to God's people, here we have this woman who somehow hears of the work of Jesus and learns something about him because she comes to him, and how does she address him? She calls him the son of David. Now, we know uh, from the situation that she's absolutely desperate because her daughter is plagued by a demon. Now, some of you, you hear demons and you say, okay, we've got cleansing of lands and demons. I'm going to check out. This, is <laughs> These are the kinds of stories that say this is why Christianity is fading in our society. Let me just push back at you ever so slightly. You know, there would be a time and a place in which we would say demonic possession is utterly absurd, but I don't know that we'll be there much longer. The, the, the collection of evil and the way evil impacts people is, is causing some people to believe, is there a cause greater than just uh, purely mental disorder and just purely uh, sort of lack of education? Isn't there something greater behind collective evil? We learn in, actually in Mark 9 when someone's demon-possessed, it's not so much uh, the pictures you have maybe of Rosemary's daughter, of her sort of crawling up the stairs backwards by virtue of being demon-possessed. We learn in Mark 9 that another child was demon-possessed, and what the demon did to the child was, was brought upon them self-destructive behaviors, throwing them into fires or throwing them into waters, trying to kill them. So we don't know exactly what's going on, but this woman is in an absolutely desperate, desperate situation. Her daughter is being plagued by a demon, and she hears of the work of Jesus. And that thin veil that exists between the pain of a child and the pain of a parent, you know, is is ever-present in her life. She's feeling the pains of a daughter who's possessed by this demon, and she is persistent. She has to get to Jesus. You know, think of Liam Neeson and Taken, right? Don't mess with someone's kids you'll see a whole another level of persistency. She's in a desperate situation. She's aggressively going after Jesus. She must get to him for the sake of her tri- child. And I want to ask this question, when is her great faith put on display? Is it put on display just in the midst of her desperation? Well, what I want to argue is that in the midst of desperation, everybody will put some measure of faith on display. Everybody will. You could be the most ardent atheist here, and I, assure, I know for a fact, in the midst of deep pain, you will at least attempt to cry out to the Lord for the sake of hope that maybe something will happen. When her great faith is put on display is not so much just in her desperation, but it's put on display when you read verse 23 because what do we see happening here? What does Jesus do to her when she's crying out, persistently, aggressively coming after him, demanding this healing in this situation of desperation? What does Jesus do? What do we read? But he did not answer her a word. Some of you do well to underline that verse and memorize it. He did not answer her a word. This is Jesus of Nazareth. He's healing virtually everybody who comes into contact with him. In fact, we had just read that people would just touch the, the fringes of his garment and they would find themselves healed. And here is a woman saying, Do me a favor, my daughter, who I'm unable to travel with, is possessed by a demon. You must help me. And what does she hear on the other end? Apparent silence. When is great faith put in display? It's put in display when it feels like the door's shut the deadbolt is locked when it feels like their prayers are echoes into the dark this this is the stage upon which great faith will be put in demonstration we will see what great faith looks like this is a critical time in this woman's life as she experiences the silence of Jesus i don't know if anybody knows the author john green uh, a couple of years ago he released a book called googling strangers it has this incredible he's a novelist but he wrote this Nonfiction book has this incredible story. He actually was training to be a pastor. He was in seminary studying his theology, and as part of his training, he had to work in, as a chaplain in a children's hospital. And he tells the story very early in his chaplaincy that a three year old child was brought in and had been burned to a singe. And he tells the story in great detail. He, re- he remembers vividly the smells and the screams of agony of the three year old and the screams of agony of the mother and the father. And he remembers pulling the mother and father into the, the private sort of chaplain room and asking, can I pray with you? And he remembers them looking him in the eyes and saying, no. And in the memoir, he says that this was the moment not only that he decided he wasn't going to pursue becoming a pastor, this was the moment that faith as a whole began to fade in his life. He began to reject and walk away from the Christian faith, which had made such an inroad in his life that made him want to become a pastor. But the book is called Googling Strangers, and the book tells the story, and it's also followed on a podcast known as Heavyweight. That ten years later, John Green found himself googling the name of that child. He could still remember the smells, he could still remember the screams, he could still remember the name. And he found himself googling this child's name. And much to his surprise, this child, though greatly impacted by the burns on his body, had become something of an advocate for kids in dark seasons. And not only that, he had become, through a series of events, a robust and committed Christian, as had his parents. And they spent their life talking and telling people about God's faithfulness in the midst of what felt like apparent silence in the face of difficulties. Why do I share this? Listen, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. The family of this burn victim, the Canaanite woman, they were given a platform with which they could display tremendous and great faith. And for some people, that that painful, desperate moment Accompanied by the silence of God is the means by which you start to walk away from the Christian faith. Maybe you're in it right now. You have prayed and you have prayed and you have prayed and you feel as though God is silence and you are on the verge of walking away. Things are moving from bad to worse. The silence makes the doubts inside of you rage with passion. And that once passionate and confident prayer has been reduced to groans and whimpers and whispers And you find yourself wondering, how will I move forward? Listen, I don't know what everybody is going through in this room, but I will tell you this. When do we see great faith demonstrated? It's not just in desperate situations. We will see virtually anyone experience faith, express faith in desperate situations. The great faith the faith that unleashes the saving power, the transformative power of the Holy Spirit is often seen most clearly in desperate situations accompanied by the apparent silence of God. And that's why this Canaanite woman is given to us as a model of what true and deep and robust faith looks like. The silence of God, a child that seems like they're just never going to come back A sickness that came out of nowhere, and it seems like it's moving from bad to worse. The prayers, once they start to fade, and you feel the silence of God in your face, feel like you're praying into an echo chamber, this is the place. This is when great faith is put on display. But next, let's ask, what does great faith refuse to believe? This is actually a in, in, you know, somewhat difficult story. I spent quite a bit of time reading about it. The Canaanite woman pursues Jesus, and in her crying and in her ag- agony, Jesus is silenced. He, gives her, he responds with silence towards her, and she's creating quite the commotion, quite the scene, so much so her disciples were like, man, Jesus, can't you just heal this woman and get her out of here? Like She's becoming a bit of a pain in the neck. Please, just, just get rid of her. And Jesus answers and says, listen, I was sent by my father to the lost sheep of Israel. She's a Canaanite. She's a Gentile. Now, Jesus isn't saying these people are totally, you know, ho- horrible human beings. They must disappear. But he's saying that the father had given him a very clear mission. And that was to gather up the lost sheep of Israel to feed uh, the, the descendants of Abraham, that they might fulfill, that he might fulfill all the promises God had given to them, and that they then might become a blessing to the nations. But he's saying this isn't the time. I'm sent to the lost Sheep of Israel. But the disciples can't stop her. She is persistent. She comes down into a position of submission of worship, and she said, Lord, Master, help me. Now, how does Jesus respond? It's almost offensive, especially to a Toronto ear. He says to her, as she's bowing before her in utter desperation, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, I'm not 100% sure why he calls her a dog. He uses a diminutive for dog, so small dog, maybe household dog. I don't don't believe it to be a racial slur, but it does seem to be a description that the Jewish people at the time had given towards the Gentiles, referring to them as dogs, these unclean animals that sort of scavenger for meat. He responds this way, but what's most amazing is not just that Jesus says this to her, but what immediately comes out of her mouth. Look at it in verse 27. How does she respond? She says, yes, Lord. Those are the first words that come from her mouth. She agrees. She agrees with the assessment. What is she saying? Don't speed past this. Listen, Jesus is giving her an illustration. He's giving to her a parable. He's he's saying this, you know, um, imagine you came to my house and you came and you brought over a great dish. Uh, You brought over, let's say, the greatest of steaks and we cook them. And as soon as they're cooked and ready to go, we start the meal ceremony, we say our prayer, and then I cut the steak and I immediately feed it to my dog. How would you respond? You would say, what in the world is wrong with Pastor? Why is Kyle like this? Why would he give the dog the food first? I understand, maybe the leftovers. Maybe the scraps on the side you'd give the dog a little bit. But starting the meal by giving, what in the world? Why would you assume a dog is worthy of the same status, the sort of same feeding as the human beings? She enters into the story that Jesus is saying, and she agrees with it. She says, listen, I make no excuses. I don't want to exaggerate. I'm not a descendant of Abraham. And in one real sense, I'm not worthy for this prime seat at the table. I'll agree with the the parable that you're giving, Jesus. And this is what is so incredible. This is what she refuses to believe. She refuses to believe that Jesus owes her this healing. She will not give in. He does not owe her a healing, and she knows it. She refuses to believe she deserves it. She says she is unworthy. And this is a marker of true faith, of great faith. A great faith that says, I am not worthy for you to come and act in my life, for you the transformative power to come and be experienced, of your salvation to come. I am not worthy. There's nothing I've done to hold you in my debt. Listen, so many of us in the face of the silence of God, what do we do? We start to reason with God and what our arguments look like. They look like we indeed are worthy. Lord, I have given so much money to good causes. I've gone out of my way to be nice to those people who are persecuted by society. Lord, I have been faithful. I've shared my faith. Why are you silent to me? I deserve your attention is not so subtly what we're saying to the Lord. Give me what I need. Look at me, Lord. I have been good. Why do you not do what I ask? Not this Canaanite woman. She doesn't go before the Lord looking inside of herself and saying, I deserve a seat at the table. She doesn't think for a second that God owes her anything. And this is a mark of great faith. The ability to to pursue the Lord in the midst of silence while also loudly saying, I am not worthy, Lord. There is nothing inside of me that is worthy. There's not a hint of pride in the way she comes before Jesus. She agrees with his assessment. This is what she refuses to believe. She refuses to believe anything inside of her is worthy of the Lord's attention, of his salvific power. If this is what she refuses to believe, what does she believe, though? If she just said, listen, I'm unworthy, she'd quit pushing forward. She'd say to her daughter some days later, I gave it a fighting chance, but when I thought about it, I'm a Canaanite woman. Maybe she spent most of her life worshiping idols. Maybe she's a recent convert. She said, there's just nothing inside of me that was worthy of the Lord acting this way. And in despair, she would have turned and walked away. But what do we read her doing? She enters into the parable. She reasons with Jesus inside of the parable, okay? I mean, this is incredible. Jesus has been given these parables. His disciples never understand them. Certainly, the religious establishment don't understand them. But she enters into the parable, and what does she say to Jesus? I mean, this is incredible. She says this. Listen, Lord, I agree. I don't deserve a place at the table. This isn't about me, but this is about your table. At the king's table, there is such an abundance. There is so much food spread at the king's table, no one leaves hungry. And not only that, there is no one fed better than the dogs of the king. So at least let some scraps fall off the side to me. I'm not worthy, but your table is so abundant. May I have some of it, please? This is incredible, and this is what true faith believes. True faith grasps and lays hold of not our own worthiness, not, our own, not God's indebtedness to us, but on God's goodness, God's character with, with deep certainty. He has such an abundance. There's so much food, it will never, ever run out. His table is overwhelmingly full. And this is what true and deep faith grasps onto. It's this deep confidence that there's an abundance of God's mercy, an abundance in God's grace. This is what true deep, great, powerful faith looks like in action. Let me maybe give you an illustration of what I'm trying to say before I drive this home to what it means in our lives. All of our relationships, in a very real way, depend on this sort of indebtedness and rights that we feel we have one towards another. So let me, let me you know give an example that might be relevant. Let's say at work, you screw up at work and you do something wrong. And you plead for mercy to your supervisor, please have mercy on me, forgive me for this mistake I've made. Now as you go and you calculate out your plea for mercy, almost all of us would be saying, as we're making that plea for mercy, this is a real mistake, I'll admit it's a real mistake, but at the same time I add value to this company, and I will add future value to this company. And so you're, you're, you're putting your, your acknowledgement of wrong on this scale. You're saying, listen, I, sure I did wrong, but I contribute quite a bit, and on the basis of what I contribute, have mercy on me and this mistake. It's the same thing we do in marriages, it's the same thing we do in really all of our relationships. We hurt the other person, we realize it's wrong, but in the back of our mind we realize there's other things we've done that actually haven't been that bad, and the other person has actually wronged us somewhat too. And we put these things on the scale and we say, on the basis of what I've done, the, the equity I've earned up to this point, forgive me. Forgive me, based on what, what, what great uh, ways I've been a great husband up to this point, or a great employee up to this point. On the merits of that, you must forgive me. This is our disposition on how we relate to anyone in society, especially when they come pleading for mercy. If it's not present merit, it's future merit. I, I will be an amazing employee if you forgive me of this huge mistake I made that costs the company money now. Think of the power of forgiving me. We plead on these grounds of merits. And what do we see here? we see the exact opposite happening. She looks inside of herself and she says, I see nothing that's worthy, and I see nothing in the future that will say I'm a good investment. I entirely look to your mercy, your strength, your goodness, your graciousness, your kindness. You are unlike anyone else, oh God. And on that merit I ask you forgive me of my sin and unleash your power in my life and rescue my daughter. It's like a two-stroke engine. It's this acknowledging the unworthiness has to happen at the exact same time and has to push a deep in confidence and faith that God is able to provide. This just happens over and over again. It's never saying, "Lord, I'm worthy and I need you to work in my life." It's saying, "I am constantly unworthy and you are constantly able to give me more and more and more. You are constantly able to transform and do things in my life." To to make me into a new person, like a two-step dance, always unworthy, and God is always gracious, always at the exact same time. You must hold these things together. God, you owe me nothing, I deserve nothing, but on the basis of your character, work in my life, I beg you. On the abundance on your table, feed me just the scraps. It is critical that you understand this. If you don't understand this, you'll be offended by the silence. You'll be offended by, and you will, you will pursue God on terms of merit, and you will never experience His grace and kindness this way. You'll never experience His power of His Spirit unleashed in your life. You'll continue to look inside of yourself the way you do with every other relationship, and you will undercut the power of God's Spirit and His grace working in your life. You must grasp this. I think I've made my point, but let me maybe say it this way. There's two ways in which we could fail to, to unleash God's power in our life for salvation and for our, our transformation to be made into new people. One way is through pride, through saying, listen, I, I don't know, I got to clean up my act first before I go to God and ask him to help me with this addictive sin pattern you know, I've got to clean up my act before I go to God and ask for this thing that I desperately want, this spouse or this, this job I desperately want. I'm not in the place where I should be. And so pride holds us back from going and seeing the abundance on the table. We think there must be something inside of us which allows us then uh, to go to God. And looking inside will, will destroy your ability to experience God's power in your life. But there's another way that we could fail. And the other way we could fail is we could assume God is stingy. We could assume God's table isn't overflowing. We can assume he has limited resources and we say, oh, I screwed up again. I'm not even going to waste his time. He, he, he wants nothing to do with a screw-up like me. And we can assume our sin is so great it overwhelms the abundance that sits on his table and we're not going to get anything. And we could fail to go to God and fail to experience his power unleashed in his life. This is happening right now in this room to people right now. I am assuring you of this. You have a chance right now to acknowledge your utter unworthiness, to ask God for whatever, you, whatever is plaguing you in your life right now. You have a chance to say you are unworthy and at the same time to say, God, your character is unbelievable. You are, you are so gracious. As I recount all the people in Scripture, all the people who receive your kindness and grace, I'm just one more person of the many. Your table so overflows. Now, Lord, please help me with this issue that just won't go away. With this crisis I'm in, Lord, have mercy. Make me into a new person. Do not be silent to me. This is an opportunity that stands before all now, and this Canaanite woman is being for us a model of what true faith looks like, always acknowledging unworthy, always acknowledging God's gracious character. Let me, sum, let me end this way. What does great faith look, looks like, look like? Well, we've got a model here in the Canaanite woman, but we must never forget it's this object of her faith which makes her faith extraordinary, which unleashes the power. The object of her faith is Jesus. And this Canaanite woman at this time could never have known She could never have known that in the midst of silence, she has even more reason to push forward towards Jesus, because one day Jesus will hang on a cross, paying for the sins and consequences of your and my behavior, all who put their faith and trust in him. And on that cross, he will say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In a very real way, he will hear the silence of God so that all of us only hear the apparent silence of God moving forward. He will hear the silence of God. He will, he, will, he will feel the silence of God in a way that we will never have to. He will absorb it on the cross. But not only that, he will also be the one who comes to earth, who's worthy for all the glories of heaven, who has no reason to doubt his place in heaven. He will come and make himself nothing on this earth, reduce himself to nothing, even giving himself to, be, uh, to die and to die on a cross. So though we are unworthy, He could take us as the worthy one into heaven to feast on all that sits before us in heaven. And not only that, there's great confidence that she could have, that she'll soon have, when she finds out that not only did he die on the cross for her, experience the silence of God for her, mark himself as unworthy though he was worthy, he also was resurrected from the dead so that death will never touch him again. And God in his faithfulness ushered in the power of new creation into the world through this work of Jesus. What does great faith look like? Well, right now, some of you have the opportunity to put it on display for all of us to see. It looks like standing in the face of the silence of God, confidently going before him, not based on any of your own merit, but on the abundance that exists in his character, and trusting that God's gracious character will shine through in salvation and transformation for you even today. This is the hope of our gospel. Trust this Christ. Be like this woman. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for... This Canaanite woman, a woman who one day, I do hope, we get a chance to meet. We thank you for her great faith, the way in which she's a model for us of what it means to relentlessly pursue you, not on the basis of our merits, but on the basis of your kindness. We now come before you as a church, knowing there are people in this congregation who are hurting and going through difficult seasons, and not based on any of the goodness of our church, but based entirely on your gracious character, we plead with you to pour out your spirit and power upon our church that we might be transformed more and more to look like Christ, that our suffering would result in more of your glory and more of the refinement of our faith, and that we would be a faithful witness to all who may come of your goodness so that more and more could eat at this table of your abundance. We thank you for the work of Christ, our elder brother, though he was worthy, him making himself nothing. And we ask now, Father, that you continue to work in our midst for Christ's sake. It's in his name we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto Podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristchurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristchurchToronto.ca.